I think what you're describing is really illustrative of the value of sharing thoughts, feelings, and experiences for a purpose, right? So you were sharing it with yourself initially through this 30,000 word dump to process it, that you had a goal and you accomplished that goal. And then once that goal is accomplished, you're like, well, there's actually more to fill in here. And I want to go do that. I want to keep these memories alive. I want to keep this as covered as I possibly can. And they're able to tell you these things because you have a purpose for asking them these questions. You're able to provide a therapy in a way that maybe a clinician couldn't because you're going to put their story on paper for other people to read. It's not just a private session to make somebody feel better. Yeah. And you know, as I'm talking to them, they're like, dude, I haven't told anybody this before. Like, I haven't even told my wife this. I haven't told the counselor this. I've never spoken about this before. So to hear them share those experiences, trusting me, that certainly meant a lot to me. And I hope that echoed well in my book as to telling their story properly. Is that much of a, is that, that's not much of a change for you, right? My name is Kerry Kite. I used to load bombs in the Air Force, and now I'm a writer, a filmmaker, and an entrepreneur. Through using the post-9-11 GI Bill to go to college, working hourly jobs to pay the bills, and freelancing my way into a career, I've studied what it takes to successfully transition from service to civilian, and that study has become a conversation. On this podcast, I speak to other veterans, successful artists and entrepreneurs about their transition, what they did well, where they failed, what they learned, and most importantly, how they applied their skills. Episode 81 features Michael Cook, an Army veteran, a member of the Digital Dunkirk team, and the author of Life and Death at Abbeygate, the fall of Afghanistan and the operation to save our allies. He was personally responsible for the evacuation of 20 Afghans, most of whom have now joined him in Michigan. Welcome. This is Veteran Made. All right, we are good to go. Good afternoon, Michael Cook. Welcome to Veteran Made. Hey, man, I appreciate it. Uh, it's been a long time coming, so good to finally meet you. Yeah, absolutely. Same here. Um, we were just talking before, before the uh, before recording. We'll we will uh, we'll stay away from the the OSU Michigan talk, but but I I do just have to acknowledge that. Um, while I'm excited for you that you do finally have a national championship, I am also very excited that there's a chance that it'll get taken away from you. So, um, enjoy, don't hold your breath. Enjoy the <laughs> enjoy the enjoy the win. Um, awesome. So, uh, for those who don't know you, would love it if you could just give us a brief primer on, on kind of who you are, where and when you've served, and uh, and I'll jump into some questions about your book from there. Yeah, great. Thank you. So my name is Michael Cook. I grew up uh, in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Obviously, I'm a big Michigan fan, as as you noted, um, but um, yeah, joined, joined the army pretty late in life. Um, so I had a, you know, a, a little bit different of a pathway than most. So I joined, I think I turned 27 at basic training. So, um, became an army engineer, went down to Fort Benning, Georgia for basic training. Um, and I'm a reservist. So, you know, after training, you just kind of go right back to your unit and go back to your civilian life. So, uh, ended up at a unit called 486 engineer company out in Toledo, Ohio. Uh, and then just served uh, there doing my weekends until we deployed to Afghanistan in 2019 and 2020. Right. And last, just last little joke on that front, there is the very famous Woody Hayes, um, Woody Hayes line. He's talking about recruiting. If he's ever recruiting in the state of Michigan um, and he ran out of gas, he would always push his car. He's like, I got to push my car over the border to get into Toledo. So I don't give any revenue to the, to the state. Yeah, uh, that's right. I served with a whole bunch of Buckeyes, obviously being uh, in a, in an Ohio unit. So uh, we definitely uh, exchanged some shit talking. <laughs> uh, no, I, love it. I love it. All right. For those listening, that's, that's the end. That's, that's the bit. Um, so your book is uh, going to be released uh, next week as of this report or as of the, as of the, um, live date of this, of this episode. Yep. February 15th. 
Yeah, February 15th. Yeah, so next week. Um, <clears throat> and you've obviously talked quite a bit about it, and, and so many folks have talked quite a bit about the entire experience, uh, both from the American side and from the Afghan side. And um, I don't want to dive too much into the content of the book. I want people to, to read the book and, and obviously can go listen to you on, on other platforms. There's been some great episodes as you talk about uh, what happened and you talk about your involvement and all of that. I want to talk a little bit more about the process of writing the book and the process of processing um, what happened and what has happened and what you know is kind of continuing to happen. So I'd like to start just very basically, where did it start for you to say, I want to tell this story this way? Yeah, it really started with, so I was, after Abdul and Mohammed, who are the two main characters in my book, got over here, we started fundraising them for them because, you know, they came here with nothing. They came here with the clothes on their back, um, two large families. They were standing in a shit filled water canal for many hours at Abbey Gate. So, I mean, literally they came here with nothing. So we started fundraising for them and so the message kind of, you know, went across social media All my friends and family, you know, knew very little about what was happening, uh, but knew that I was trying to help these people somehow. And so I was getting these calls constantly every day of, you know, people wanting to hear the full story of their evacuation and what was going on and how they could help. And so I just found myself telling this story over and over every single day. And, you know, it's not a short story to tell. Obviously, I wrote a whole book about it. So I'm sitting there for hours on the phone explaining it. And as, as time went on, I realized that the details were kind of getting a little fuzzy. Dates and order of events were getting fuzzy. And it, really, it just started for me is just I need to get this down on paper so I don't forget what happened. So I kind of just did a brain dump and, and threw up on paper, I like to say. And, um, you know, before I knew it, I had like 25, 30,000 words. And I still felt like I had a lot more to write. Um, and I felt like I really wanted to do a deep dive into what happened and, you know, explore the DOD report and, and see what that said versus what troops on the ground were saying that I was following on Instagram. So I felt like I was, you know, p pretty well positioned to, to tell a story um, and learn a little bit more about what happened and, and be able to tell the American people what happened. So that's that's really how I got started. Well, how long did it take? Did that first 30 ish thousand brain dump words brain dump? take like was that a sitting a couple of sittings like a week like what was it yeah i mean it was three to five days probably i mean I, it just fell out of me I, it was, I, I just really felt like i had to get it off my chest and it was very therapeutic honestly the first time i just got all the details done um and when i was i kind of like sat back in my chair i was like okay i have the whole story out of me um and that was very therapeutic just to like i said get it off my chest and and then i could transition to okay i need to do some more research here i need to start doing some interviews and really get you know down to the the nitty-gritty of what happened yeah it's almost like the the process in reverse right where you're like you're kind of spilling the narrative and and going through the the thoughts and feelings and memories and all of that and then instead of doing research to write that you wrote that and then did the research and went back and, and filled some things in. Was there mm -hmm. anything that stood out to you in that initial dump um, either at the time uh, or going back and reading those words that um, that surprised you or that you hadn't really thought was, was in your head and on your heart that came out in that initial run? Um, I think I didn't really process what was happening um, or I guess just like the scale of what was happening while we were going through, you know, that evacuation process back in August of 21. So, you know, combing back through all my 
um, Instagram messages and my WhatsApp messages and my signal messages and just kind of putting it back in order. I, just, I think that's really when it hit me as to like the scale of how, how bad this situation really was. And I, I don't think I really had time to process it while we were going through it because, you know, during those weeks, anybody that was working on the evacuation, trying to help someone get out, they weren't sleeping. You know, they were just constantly on their phone, just trying to search for anybody that could help. And I don't think there was really time to process, um, you know, how bad of a situation that we put both our troops in and, you know, put our Afghan allies in. So I think that that was the big thing that stuck out to me is there's a lot of times I just sat back in my chair. I'm like, holy shit, like I totally forgot that this happened or this happened. And that's so crazy. So I think just having that realization just really hit me. Yeah, that's wild. What was the, um, I just, I mean, I remember back to that time, just like, myself, like I participated very minimally in, in, in this, but did participate a bit in some of it. And it was just like, it's just re- reading, reading this book and going back to where I was sitting. I mean, I could like literally, as I'm reading your book, I'm transported back to my desk in my house at the time, mm-hmm. like where I was doing my day job, yeah. uh, recording podcast episodes, and then also getting on signal and getting on IG and talking to these people that I'm talking to as well. It was a very, I had never really experienced, uh, like this is the wrong word. Um, but it's just, I think it's the word, it's the only word that's coming to mind right now. It's like almost like a nostalgia, obviously not a positive time and not something that I'm trying to imply was positive, but this like very vivid memory of something actually very closely removed. You're usually mm-hmm. transported in those times, like back to your childhood or back to these other places. Um, but reading your book, I'm like, dude, that was three years ago, two and a half years ago. And I was transported back to where I was while also, you know, being engrossed in, um, in your story and their story as well. Um, did you find any, any of that kind of thing difficult for you to process so quickly after, um, cause you're not writing this decades later, you're writing this a, a year ish plus later. Yeah. Um, was that process, you said it was therapeutic, but was the writing process overall a positive experience for you to, to process these things? Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm so glad you said that because that honestly, that was one of my goals is to, you know, the, the media has moved on so fast from Afghanistan, right? I mean, it's moved on several times since then. And I really just was want to do anything I can to keep Afghanistan and keep our partners uh, in the spotlight. So I'm glad that those feelings are going through your head as you're reading that and you're remembering what happened and remembering where you were and who you were trying to help and everything. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, for me personally, like I said, it, just, it was so therapeutic. But what was even better was when I started interviewing the Marines from Abbey Gate and you know, about a year after the evacuation, I was actually able to track down the sergeant that pulled Abdul and Mohammed out of the gate, uh, Sergeant Zelensky, and I've been able to meet him and he's just a phenomenal guy. And, but as I was interviewing him and his buddies that were at Abbey Gate, you know, just like hearing, hearing from them that this experience of interviewing with me was therapeutic for them. And they could finally have like a little closure, uh, to know that, you know, at least something good came out of, you know, that week that they spent at HKI at Abbey Gate, because these guys saw some horrible stuff, right? Some absolutely horrible stuff. You, there's there's a few passages in my book of just the nightmares that these guys had to deal with. Um, so for to, to interview them and know that just letting them talk to me um, was therapeutic f- for them was, you know, all worth it. Yeah, it underscores an interesting point. Th- I mean, therapy is something that... Um, I think for better, um, but for better or for worse, we're talking a lot about as a culture right now, and even outside of the military, outside of the veteran community that, that 
you and I are active in, but just as an American culture at large, we're talking quite a bit about therapy right now. And it is certainly beneficial, I think, for for people to it's overall a good thing that we're talking about talking about feelings, right? I don't want to sure. get into specifics. I'm not a, a clinician. Um, I have my opinions on certain things, but I think what you're describing is really uh, illustrative of the value of sharing thoughts, feelings, and experiences for a purpose, right? So you, you were sharing it with yourself initially through this 30,000 word dump to mm-hmm. process it. That you had a goal and you accomplished that goal. And then once that goal is accomplished, you're like, well, there's actually more to fill in here and I want to go do that. And then you had this idea of, I want to keep this alive. I want to keep these memories alive. I want to keep this as covered as I possibly can. Right. And then when you go speak to them and and you're interviewing them, they're able to tell you these things because you have a purpose for asking them these questions, right? Like you're able to provide a, therapy in a way that maybe a clinician couldn't because you're going to put their stories on paper for other people to read. It's not just a, a private session to make somebody feel better. Yeah. And you know, as I'm talking to them, like a couple of them, you know, they're talking about horrible experiences like watching babies get stomped or watching children get thrown on sea wire and just all this crazy stuff. And they're like, dude, I haven't told anybody this before. Like, I haven't even told my wife this. I haven't told a counselor this. I've never spoken about this before. So to hear them share those experience, like trusting me to tell me those experiences, you know, that certainly meant a lot to me. And I, and I hope, uh, you know, that echoed well in my book as to uh, telling their story properly. Yeah. Did you, what was the process like for you to get a hold of those folks? And I mean, on that note, was it difficult for you to kind of secure those interviews and build that trust? Yeah. So at the beginning, you know, I didn't, I didn't have contact with any of them. Um, It really started with, well, when I talked to Sergeant Zelinsky during the evacuation, you know, I had to just a very brief phone conversation with him. He's standing at Abbey Gate. He's got hundreds of thousands of Afghans waving papers in in, in his face. And, you know, we were cutting phone, phone lines and using jammers. So just like any chance you got to get a call through was so valuable. So <clears throat> I remember I was, Abdul and Muhammad were just trying to fighting their way to the front. And, um, I get a call from Abdul, which, you know, was rare when he was up by the gate because like I said, because of the jammers and I answered the phone and, um, I could hear commotion, but, and I could hear Abdul yelling, but I could tell that the the phone wasn't up to his ear. I, I could hear that he had his arm extended, right? And um, then all of a sudden, a voice comes over the phone, and it's he says, "Hey, Sergeant Zelensky, United States Marine Corps." And I was just so floored to be on uh, on the phone with somebody that was at the gate and speaking English. And um, you know, I, I identified myself, and he was ultimately the one that was able to grab them and bring them in. Um, but during the commotion. Um, I thought he said Sergeant Valensky with a V. So immediately I wrote down Sergeant Valensky because I just figured that information might be important in the near future. And, you know, that led to a one year manhunt of a Sergeant Valensky in the Marine Corps. And I had a bunch of Marine buddies like searching through emails, trying to find this guy. Turns out there hasn't been a Sergeant Valensky in the Marine Corps for many years. And um, so I kind of was like stalled right at the beginning. And then yeah, about a year later, I was on Instagram, I was on Northern Provisions page, and they had posted something about HKI. And I was like, you know, what? let me just give this one more chance. So I wrote, does anybody know Sergeant Valensky was at Abbey Gate on this date? I don't know what unit he was in. But um, 
no kidding, 10 minutes later, someone responds. And it was just like so classic for Instagram to be, you know, bringing me back together with this person when, you know, Instagram was such a huge part of our story. If you read the book, just that digital Dunkirk network of people on all over social media. So, you know, another 30 minutes, uh, another 30 minutes later, um, I'm on the phone with Sergeant Valensky because someone had seen my, my note and, and connected me with them. So, you know, we talked for about an hour. Um, it was a lot less hectic than the first time we had connected on the phone and we just got to know each other and, you know, tell, tell each other stories. And we do, by the end of it, we were both crying. Um, but for him to hear, you know, that Abdul Muhammad were here living in Michigan with me and we're doing great and the families were doing great and the kids were in school. He was just so pumped. Um, so that's really where it, like it started with the, with the interview. So I was able to, you know, form a relationship with him and then he was able to connect me, um, uh, with some other guys that were serving at Abbey gate that day. And that those are the majority of the interviews I did. So as somebody who isn't, I mean, you're not a trained, you're not a, a trained writer, right? You're not, right. An, you're not a trained author. Like it's not like something you grew up wanting to be, you know, you were in sales and then you're an engineer and you're a reservist. You know, you're not a you're not a special operator. You're you're not a detective. You're you're not a journalist. You're not a writer. You're not an author. But somehow you pulled all of those disciplines kind of together in order to obviously help um, save these these twenty lives and and those guys those two guys in particular. Um, but then you're also on the back end putting all these things together uh, to try to tell this story again for yourself first and then for for others second. Um, how did you how did you start to strategically map? those relationships and those conversations and what was guiding you along the way as you were moving your way through the the kind of post dump research detective journalist phase of this process of, the, of this project yeah that's a really good question so it, it really started with you know going through the dod report heavily and um really digging in and seeing what the government said versus you know what i was hearing on social media and then you know from there I would get a story from one Marine and I would match that up against the DOD report and see if those aligned. And then that would, that would in one way or another lead me to, okay, but what about, what did this guy say? And then I'd, you know, interview another guy and match that up to what the DOD report said. It was just kind of like a ping pong back and forth of Marines are saying this, the DOD report is saying this, these don't match. So I need to find somebody else and see what their story is. And, you know, there's a lot of things that after interviewing many Marines, none of it matched up with the DOD report. I mean, some obviously did, but there was, there was um, multiple things that, that didn't align, which is interesting. And, you know, I, I wasn't there, but I tend to usually believe the Lance Corporal that was on the ground over, you know, an officer sitting in an office writing a DOD report up. How did that square when you sent the manuscript to the DOD? Any of those things come up? You know what? Um, I was pleasantly surprised that a lot less got redacted than I expected, um, which is good. And it, you know, makes me trust that process a little bit more, but you know, I, I'm, I was not hesitant to talk smack to about the DOD and the state department, um, more of the state department in, in the book, but I was very pleasantly surprised that they only redacted very minor stuff. And it, I felt, I felt it was very fair. Um, the things that they redacted was just kind of like troop movement and dates of where tro troops were and uh, stuff like that. So I, I wasn't too upset about it. Yeah. Some of the more tactical level things rather than the kind of strategic and more of the, yeah, the <clears throat> PR type stuff. Yep. What, what was, um, what were you, what was guiding you kind of emotionally and like relationally as you were going through this process, right? Not knowing any of these, uh, a, a lot of these people, 
personally, right? Most, mm-hmm. most of them not knowing them personally. Obviously, a couple you know very, very well, very intimately, but others you don't. Um, as you were utilizing these tools, the reports and the um, uh, you know, testimony, for lack of a better word, from from the from the re- Marines that were on the ground, um, what, what were you? How were you? How were you, Michael, personally moving through that process? Like, what was what was guiding you as you were crafting mm-hmm. this story? Like, were you thinking? at all of what kind of, I mean, it's, 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 it's memoir esque, but it's also then not your memoir in, in certain parts, right? It reads like a thriller, but it's also nonfiction. And this, these things actually happen. It's historical fiction that just happened. Like, were you thinking about any of those things as you were piecing these together? What was, what, like, take us inside of your mind and your heart through that process. I think one thing was during these interviews with these Marines, these interviews were so emotional, dude. I mean, like both me and my writing partner at multiple times were just left speechless and just, we would sit in silence for a little bit and just be like, damn, you know, just hearing these stories. And, you know, a lot of uh, press has come out about um, many members of the military that served at Abbey gate and it's very well-deserved. Um, but there's a lot of people that did some very heroic shit there that their names haven't come out. And that kind of became a, a, a leading reason for telling the story is like, I get to now be the person that brings these names of these young Marines who did heroic shit, uh, out to the world. Um, so that became a, you know, a guiding factor for me for sure, just to be able to share their stories because their names haven't come out yet. Yeah. It's one of those experiences, one of those events rather a series of events that happens in this, that happened in this conflict that, um, I even forgot until I was reading it, like just how massive of an operation this was between civilians and the State Department and the DOD and the 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 comparison to Dunkirk is apt like it's it's, sure. it's, it's bizarre. in the digital age. It's really bizarre because we we were, you know, you mentioned earlier that the the media has dropped this story really quickly. They drop every story really quickly, right? They're ready to move on to that thing. And that conditions uh, a a people, a society, a citizenry to think about these things in certain ways, right? So it's just on to the next, on to the next, on to the next. And when this kind of event, these series of events happens and it's happening on the news in real time, you're like, man, that's crazy, man, that's crazy, man, that's crazy. It's so sad. And then if you're involved, you know, you have some better understanding of it. But even then you're as you're describing here, you still had to go do research and talk to all these people and all these different things. And <clears throat> I don't know exactly what it is that I'm trying to describe, but it's this, this like overwhelming sense of, of, uh, of kind of dread that you get like reading this and thinking about like just how horrific and how terrible it was uh, for those that were involved. And you're describing these heroic acts that you want to get more, um, attention than they have been getting, or in some cases getting attention at all. Uh, How did it affect you? You've described the emotions that you felt with your, with your co-writer and with some of the people that you've spoken to, but how did it affect you personally as, as you moved through this project? Mm -hmm. It's a, it's a heavy topic, obviously, you know, for, for anybody that's served in Afghanistan or worked on the evacuation, like, it meant so much to us, right. To try to help these people that, that we worked with. And like, 
I, in interviews in the past, I've, I've liked to say like, these weren't just my coworkers that I was helping. Like these were my good friends. Abdul Muhammad were my good friends. Um, they took great care of me when I was in Afghanistan and I was going to do anything I could to take care of them. I mean, just to see them in the worst situation in their life. Like every time I talked to them, I could tell they were terrified and they had their little kids there at Abbey gate. And, and I mean, one of them was a baby. It was like six months old. And if anybody's seen the pictures of Abbey gate, like it was an absolute disaster and people were getting crushed to death. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I, I just, I felt so badly for them. Um, and just wanted to do anything I could to, to help them get out of that situation, I guess. Yeah. And then on, and then on, on the back end of writing the story and talking to all of these people, like, did you find yourself going through, like, what kind of emotional processes did you go through upon like reflection as you were mm-hmm. interviewing the Marines and, and putting the story together on the back end? Yeah. I mean, I like it stuck with me the whole time that I was the lucky one, a hundred percent. One, I wasn't even there. Right. And two, I was, we were successful in getting them here. So like, I didn't there. I know there was a ton of people who worked on the evacuation that didn't get their people through. Right. And that, that must be tough because they're probably still stuck there right now. A lot of them are probably still in, in hiding and that, you know, I can't, it has to take a huge emotional toll. Right. So I was the lucky one that was able to, you know, get my guys out of there, but you know, going through those interviews, I, I just felt so badly, um, for the guys that went through that shit, you know, our troops that, that wanted nothing more than to just help anybody they could. Um, I think a common theme from all my interviews with the Marines were we wanted to get as many people through as we could because they saw how horrible the situation was. And one of the lines Zelensky told me, was like, I tried everything to help these people. And I'm so sorry that I couldn't get more of you guys out. That was kind of his message to the Afghan people. Um, so I just to see like the pain that these guys are still going through, um, man, I, I, I hope he doesn't mind me sharing this, but, um, I talked to Zelensky two days ago and he had just seen a, a little snippet, um, from an interview I did. And, uh, he called me up and he was like, dude, you know, watching that took me right back to Abbey Kate. And, um, so, you know, me personally, I'm fine. Um, because I didn't go through any of this, the things that these guys did, but it, it, it hurts to know that, um, these guys, you know, still, still see these Afghan children in their dreams that they had to turn away and, uh, just the emotional toll that it took on them. Yeah. And, and, and you know, so many of these people that were there weren't like they got, they were on another deployment and then they got orders to go do something that they were not trained to do. Right. Um, and obviously leadership at, State Department and, and DOD was not where it should have been in order to facilitate the best evacuation um, that, that we could get. Um, and it's kind of as, as political as I want to get on that front. But the so there's, there's kind of two things that I find interesting with Digital Dunkirk, right? You, you mentioned in the book um, that the same tools, social media that were used, the Internet that we're using to kind of demean each other politically and culturally in this country over the course of this time period that we're currently occupying and that extends back to, to the, the GWAT, um, it are the same tools that allowed us to help each other and help others. Um, and I know you, you, 
I, I love the the chapter about digital Dunkirk. It's like trying to trying to actually describe what it is 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 a really difficult thing because it's this online ecosystem. Um, but what what are your thoughts on on just that idea? Um, and what can we learn from our use of digital tools through this uh, particular uh, exercise or operation, whatever you want to call it? Uh, and what can we take specifically on that front moving forward? <clears throat> Instagram was a very powerful tool, as we know. I mean, uh, the name, whoever coined the name Digital Dunkirk is, you know, a genius. It's a phenomenal name for the group, like you said. Um, but I think a lot of us didn't even realize like that we were in something like this while we were going through it until like afterwards and we were able to reflect on how much good that that group did and how many people that group was able to get out, you know, not having any sort of po real power, right? I mean, we're all acting as civilians. And I think one of the things I wrote in, in, in my book was like, individually, we brought very little to the table, right? We like me personally, the only thing I brought to Digital Dunkirk were two names, Abdul Mohammed. Didn't know anybody at, at the gates. I didn't know anybody at the airport. Um, so individually, we brought very little, but collectively, we had a ton of resources. And I mean, the, the group really set up a, a, a jock online, a, a joint operations center, right? And um, had a ton of information. So who was working, what gates and um, phone numbers of people that were there and what documents the State Department was looking for that day and, you know, all, anything you would want to know and what, you know, where Taliban checkpoints were. I, you know, I was even able to get a map that that led Abdul and uh, Mohammed to Abbey Gate without hitting any Taliban checkpoints. So the information being passed was um, incredible to see. And, and what we learned from it, you know, I don't know what the, the overall message is, but I think just like the power of our veterans um, and for them to step up when we see the government lacking um, when they're going to leave our, our friends and allies behind was just so inspiring to see just, just the power of the veteran community and how we're able to all come up together online. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a tool, right. And it can be used for ill and it can be used for good, but sure. at the end of the day, it is, it is something that connects all of us. And especially if you have a, a, a niche community, in this case, the military community, the veteran community, I, I saw lots of, you know, there's obviously, there's some high profile people in our community that people don't typically like and, 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 and uh, talk shit about, um, and, and even did so a little bit through this, but there's also uh, kind of let bygones be bygones and see what we can do to help each other out. Um, for those that are participating on the ground, for those that are participating, you know, more digitally like you to me sending a couple things here and there, nothing crazy, but we're all kind of participating in this range of, of both experiences and range of participation. Um, and it's, it's funny cause we just, we've gone right back to just being like, Oh, Instagram's terrible. Instagram's a terrible place for all of us to be. But I think part of what this maybe underscores for me anyway, it's just my opinions. Like, well, we, we are the ones who have the power to make it or anything else a better place. Like we don't, mm -hmm. we don't have to let it go back to this thing that isn't helpful and isn't healthy. Yeah. And you know, Instagram for me personally has done so much for my life. I mean, I've connected with such an awesome group of, you know, military members that are online, including yourself. And I've gotten so much support from that, that, uh, company, you know, for my book and just for everything in my life. I, I joined PB Abate, which is an awesome yeah. group that, you know, I pretty much discovered online and that's had a huge impact on my life. I mean, I was just hanging out with, with a member down in, uh, down at Mardi Gras a couple nights ago and, you know, I'm still recovering from that, but, um, the experiences that that has brought me, um, being able to go out to Montana and, and, uh, go hang out at the, uh, patrol base there 
um, with just some inspiring people, you know, some, some, some authors that I've looked up to for a long time. Uh, one of which was Sebastian Junger, who was like a major influence on me even joining the military in the first place. So, you know, Restrepo and his books, Tribe and War, um, you know, those were that heavily influenced my decision to join the military. So to be able to go out and spend, you know, four days with him, uh, as well as a bunch of other people I look up to because of Instagram, it, it was such a blessing for me. Yeah. It's what you make. I mean, the, the corner of Instagram you're describing, you know, it's like patrol base Abate, patrol base Abate book club, dead reckoning collective, like all, all mm -hmm. of these people that we're able to interact with and have on podcasts or go on podcasts or have these, discussions, you know, the group chats, the IG lives, the, you know, what, what have you. It's, I mean, I, I love uh, what we've done with, with that little corner um, of, of the community. And, and there's a range of, of types of veterans, branches, MOSs, AFSCs, ratings, like what have you, every kind of person um, are, are, are in those groups sharing words, right? Sharing poetry, mm -hmm. sharing fiction, sharing memoir, sharing hard things, good things, fun things, goofy things, all, all of these different um, things that just make up life. Right. Yeah. And, and that's a, that's the good thing about PB Abate is like, you don't have to be a special operator to show up. Right. Like I'm, I'm just a pogue reservist and I'm, and I'm welcome there. It doesn't matter if you deployed, it doesn't matter who you are. If you served, if you raised your right hand, you, you're welcome at PB Abate. Yeah. What does, um, what do you feel like, and this can be from from the veteran angle, from the veteran community standpoint, or, or just for kind of from the American standpoint. Um, what do you feel like? So the media has not covered this as much as as it should for for you know consistent period of time after. But what's your sense of what the American people think about, or what do you want them to think about reading this book outside of of, of remembering some of these heroic acts that that they may otherwise have not gotten exposure to? And not to minimize that, it's obviously mm -hmm. extremely valuable and it's it's one of your stated goals, but. What's past that goal for you? What do you want the American people to to think about more as they as they read these stories? Yeah, I think the biggest thing is that this isn't over yet. There's we still have, you know, I think that the last number that came out from um, No One Left Behind, which is a, a NGO trying to help get people get out of Afghanistan. I mean, there's still over two hundred thousand of our allies stranded there, and it is a very bad situation for both them and their families. You know, women's rights have completely gone out the window. Um, in Afghanistan, if you're a, a woman, you don't have the right to work or go to school. You can't leave your house without a male escort. You can't wear what you want to wear. I mean, they've gone back to the Stone Age, um, and a lot of our allies are, you know, still on the run and hiding. I, I got a message today from an Afghan that's trying to get out. I mean, I still get these messages every single day of these people just in the worst situations of their lives. So I think the one of the big things for me is just reminding people that this isn't over yet, and there's still there's still people that are in very desperate situations and the Taliban is still the government. And, um, you know, there's some, some resistance groups that have kicked up, um, fighting the Taliban and we have an opportunity to support them as Americans and as the American government. Um, we haven't publicly done that yet. Um, and I'm not quite sure why, but, um, yeah, I think the, the, the major message is there's still a lot of people there that need your help. Yeah, I um, when I went to Afghanistan, I only ever went to Bagram. But I think about, <clears throat> I think about the, um, 
I just I think about us obviously potentially being back there one day. Yeah. Um, it's kind of it's kind of bizarre because I, I can't remember who it was, but somebody it may have been Jack Carr, but somebody's talking about how uh, we just like Bagram is the most uh, strategically advantageous place to to operate from there, obviously, which is why we which is why we put a base there. By the Russians put yep. a base there, which is why we took that base over and turned it into the city that we turned it into, and then we just let it go. Yeah. Um, and and then Hkaya happens and Abigate happens and all these different things and I it's like yeah it's not over and it just it does make me wonder what kind of perpetual cycle we're in um, and it's different than Vietnam in that way because uh, it we weren't ever going to go back there but here here we are you know having opportunities to help digitally or to help remotely or to help from a distance and then um, all those places that we all have memories good bad ugly and everything in between. Uh, it's like kind of like this Schrodinger's country almost, mm-hmm. right? That's what it feels like to me. And, and it's not crazy to say that we might be back there, honestly. I mean, this, when you look at the the agreement we made with the, with the Taliban, the Doha agreement, it was very clear that they were not to allow Al-Qaeda to gain a stronghold back in Afghanistan and run camps out of Afghanistan. And that's what they promised to do. Well, we have proof right now that there's multiple al-Qaeda training camps in, in Afghanistan, and they're working on you know plans to strike the West again. So it's very reasonable to say that uh, our generation or our kids might step foot back in Afghanistan. Yeah. As you've had these conversations with, with uh, Sergeant Zelensky and, and, and others, um, what do you feel like we as a community feel towards um, the GWAT, towards war in general, and kind of like towards where what's the what's the state of our community from your perspective um and you're in you're still in right you're a reservist like you're you're ready to be called up should should something happen um but you know i mean i 9-11 happened when when i was 13 mm-hmm. and i've you know basically i obviously have memories from you know from 5 to 13 but in earnest like my whole life has been like, oh, we've been in Afghanistan, like that's the war. And now we're maybe looking forward to some others, maybe looking at going back. You're having conversations with people who are um, were acutely participating in that drawdown and are seeing terrible things um, when they try to go to sleep. Like what what is your what is your read on how we as a community feel uh, about I don't want to say something as generic as war, but mm-hmm. about war. Yeah. So I'm in the IRR now, luckily. So it would take, you know, quite a big event, I think, to pull me back in. But, um, you know, shit, looking at the news right now, that's not very far fetched either. But I think, you know, I think the Afghan withdrawal um, and how the accountability aspect has been handled since then, which, you know, there has been no accountability. I think that absolutely has affected us as a fighting force. I mean, there's been that graphic going around Instagram just recently of the strength of each branch, right? And it's like the Marine Corps is in good shape, but everyone else is not, right? Um, everyone else was moderate to weak. So I think it absolutely is affecting um, the strength of our force and people that want to serve. Yeah, I mean, with the recruiting crisis we have going on right now, it's it is interesting to me, like the Marines, the Marines are, are in good shape because uh, people who join the Marines want to join for the challenge, not mm-hmm. for the benefits, right? Yeah. The benefits are just strictly that. They're just benefits. They they want the challenge. They want to go be a rifleman, right? Like they yep. want to go fight. Um, and I'm not sure what the, I'm not sure what the solve is. There's lots of different things going around about the recruiting crisis. Not, not that that was somewhere I was necessarily expecting us to go, but we're there. It's like the, the, it's real 
and there's lots of different opinions in our in our community about uh, what caused it, what the solutions are, and how we should approach helping mm-hmm. the, the DoD or not. Right? Yeah. Uh, when you have 13 dead Americans uh, from HKI and you know 200 dead Af- dead Afghans, and you have nobody stepping up saying we fucked up and this was my fault, people are going to be pissed. I mean. I gave a large chunk of my life to serving in Afghanistan as so many other people did. Uh, so to see it end like that um, and no one stepping up saying, Hey, this is on me. It's, it's, it's just beyond frustrating. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Um, so what's next for you? So you're, you're in the IRR. Um, I didn't realize I thought you were still in the, uh, in the traditional reserve. So my, my bad on that. Um, but yeah, how, 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 what's, what's your transition been like as you've written this book? Does it feel like closure for you to a certain, to a certain extent and kind of like ready to, to move on to the, to the next thing, or is there still more for you to do? Yeah, it definitely feels like closure. I mean, just like I've been doing this, working on this book for so long. So for it to finally be coming out, um, now is, is very relieving and feels like a big burden has been lifted off of me and I can just kind of put that work out into the world and move on to the next thing in my life. But I don't think I'll ever really get away from Afghanistan. I mean, like I said, I get messages every single day from people still looking for help and I do the best I can to respond to them, but, um, it's obviously a challenge to keep up with it. And at this point it's like, it's, there's very little I can actually do to help them. Um, uh, one, one thing that I've been doing with Beth Bailey, um, who's an amazing reporter is we have a podcast called the Afghanistan project podcast. And, you know, that really started as a way to, to give Afghans knowledge about what visas they might qualify for, what pathways they have to the United States. Um, so that's really how it started. It's kind of morphed since then. And now it's a lot more of talking to, you know, veterans that served at HKI and what they're going through now and just the, their mental state. Um, but we certainly talk to Afghans still as well. But I think that is something I'll continue to do and just try to, you know, give everything I can to the people of Afghanistan. Um, but other than that, yeah, just glad to, glad to be done with the book, glad to put it out in the world. Um, and hopefully uh, I can stay involved in helping get people out of the country. Is there more writing in your future? Was this a process and a project that you that you went through that you enjoyed enough to think about pursuing it um, again, either in book form or, or write more? Yeah. I mean, never say never, I guess. Um, for now, no, I'm going to take a little break. Um, I certainly enjoyed the process of it. I mean, it, it was a lot more difficult and a lot longer than I expected to, you know, go through the process of writing and, and getting something that a reader could easily digest and, you know, then going through the, uh, the vetting process with the DOD and then the publication process know, is all very challenging and long, but I'm glad I did it. But yeah, I think for now, um, take a little break from writing and then, you know, see what happens after that. What was, um, this might sound like an odd question, but what was your favorite either part of the book to write or, or what was your favorite part about writing the book about the process? Yeah. I think one thing that stands out to me every time I read it, the part that like makes me choke up was, when Sergeant Zelensky flew up here to Michigan um, to meet me for the first time and then meet Abdul Muhammad. And, you know, I, I met him first and gave him a big hug and we shared a beer and I was just so happy to see him. But then to, to sit down at Abdul and Muhammad's dinner table with Zelensky and his father, who he brought, and just kind of be an observer in the room um, and watch. I think my favorite part was watching Zelensky's dad watch him. 
because you could just tell that this man was so fucking proud of his son. You know, he saved generations of people and I'm, I'm tearing up right now just talking about it, but being able to write that chapter, um, which is, you know, the, the last chapter was brought me closure for sure. Um, I know it brought Zelensky some closure and uh, was a very cool um, sight to see. Yeah, that's incredible. There are, um, there are, uh, the thing that really struck me about this is, and it's what I love about stories that aren't special operator stories, which those ones are cool and those ones are valuable. And I'm, I'm, I'm glad those dudes go out and do the things that they do. Mm-hmm. Strikes me about this story and others like it, this one in particular, is that <clears throat> these are people who enlisted to just to do that job and serve, serve their country. Right. And like, just go do the thing that they were going to be told to do. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, they're not like, Oh, I'm going to go through selection. And I'm going to go do this. and I'm going to go do these kinds of missions. It's like, well, no, I'm just going to go, I'm going to go do the job that the Marine Corps needs me to do. Um, and that might be, you know, <laughs> flying from Kuwait to Afghanistan and running some drills on a tarmac, just in case we have to do something that we're not fucking equipped to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that was the thing that really struck me about it that put, um, cause even Tom's book, Tom and Worth wrote that book. Um, and that one was like, that one was a little bit different. This one was more, this one felt more, um, I don't know, something I'm, I'm grasping at how to describe it, but it felt more like it was just kind of like these, these Marines are just a- average Marines, no offense to the Marines listening, but you know what I mean? Just like yeah. people who, yeah, they were there. E3, E4s, yeah. E5s, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, just like, unfortunately the, the three, uh, soldiers that we lost, um, last week, you know, it's like the, 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 these things have consequences, right? These, these, uh, deployments have consequences and you never know what's mm-hmm. going to happen. And then you never know when you might be given the opportunity to, um, you know, become a hero like Sergeant Zelensky. And I mean, just to have his dad, for him to have his dad there, just like being able to actually see and feel the energy in that room with you and Dual Muhammad, it's just like. It's wild, man. Yeah. I mean, there's nine people in between those two families. And so just imagine, you know, the amount of lives that have been saved, not only those nine, but their future, you know, their future kids. And, and, you know, a a few of those nine are are girls and um, would have grown up, like I said, under Taliban rule. I mean, their lives would have been so much different than they are now. They're, they're doing so good. They, they're fluently speaking English now. As my last visit over there, I was able to have full conversations with these girls and that was so cool. And, you know, they're doing so well in school and, um, they're, like I said, they're playing soccer and they're making friends and like they're living free here in America. And that was, you know, because of Zelensky. So yeah, it was very special. That's awesome. Um, all right. So to wrap things up here, uh, where, where can folks find you if you want them to find you, um, where can folks go, purchase the book. We'll drop all the show notes, all the links in the show notes and obviously tag you on Instagram and LinkedIn and all that good stuff. Where do you want to drive traffic? Yeah. Best place to find me personally is Instagram. That's where I'm most active. Um, and then the book is called life and death at Abbeygate and you can find it anywhere. Um, Amazon's easy Barnes and Noble. Um, if you want to go buy it in person, uh, really anywhere you buy your books, um, you can find it there or you can find it at my website too, which is michaelcook.com. Great. Yeah. We'll, we'll link that out and we'll, we'll send folks there. Um, okay. So to end every episode, I ask an open-ended question. Um, and we've obviously talked a lot, uh, here today. So, um, the, the question is what's on your heart and what's on your mind for our community could be a piece of advice, 
something you want to get off your chest or something you want to reiterate from today. But Michael, what's on your heart? What's on your mind? That's a great one. I, I, I would say, you know, as a veteran community, it's so easy to, you know, kind of talk shit to each other and, and tear each other down. But um, the more that we can support each other in every aspect of our lives now, even now that we're civilians, it's, it's just so important as a community to, to stick together. And uh, I've seen nothing but love from the veteran community, from, you know, our, our veteran Instagram community. And it's that's so special to see in the military and I think kind of rare, unfortunately. So, you know, the more that we can support each other, um, the better. And then, you know, I'll give PB Abate another plug here. If, if, if you're a veteran and you're looking for a place to find community, uh, you're welcome to come to PB Abate. There's, there's something there for you um, and you'll meet some great people like I have. Can confirm. I haven't made it out to Montana yet, but um, but, uh, but yeah, I can't confirm Michael appreciate your time. Appreciate your efforts. Um, thank you for writing the book. Thanks for sharing it. And, um, thanks for coming on the show, man. Yeah. Thanks so much, brother. Appreciate it. 